Coming up in episode 25, Adam ignores the topic. Sage waxes on burning economics with another question. What are the best ways to handle advancement? So I'm pretty excited about this question because this, uh, this was actually not that easy for me to come up with points on it, uh, which I think is actually a good thing. Uh, totally. When, when we have questions that I just like am spewing out ideas on, it's hard to make a, a cogent point. Uh, but I think I've got a few here. I'm okay uh, with this. But I'll let you, I'll let you lead because I, I'm not sure about mine. So one that's kind of iffy. Uh, because it's not technically used for character advancement, mm-hmm. is uh, experience boxes in Freebooting Venus. Ah. Um, you you check off these boxes, and the goal of the game. Is, so this is this is Vincent Baker's kind of unreleased, uh, quiet, weird, uh, not really apocalypse worldy, but not really anything else either, kind of game. Uh, it's really cool, but the. He, his stated goal is that you want to check off as many of the experience boxes as you can, and the experience boxes are things like, you know, I opened a door to a place nobody has seen in a thousand years, or things like that, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is great. And it means that you, are, you have a lot of the setting built into these boxes that are written on your sheet, uh, and you get to do lots of things and show that you've done lots of things, which is something I, you know, I like artifacts of play. That's one of my big things. But they are not actually used for character advancement in that game, although I think it'd be a really sweet way to do character advancement. Yeah, uh, I, I agree, because I've messed with ideas for other games that do uh, very similar things, uh, but tie it into more of an advancement uh, kind of mechanism. Because So it's interesting. Your first point on advancement it's a system that's not actually used for advancement. It's a system, so the, the way I want to take a lot of these things today is possible things that could be used for advancement in in more interesting ways. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, the automatic advancement system that we're all very used to is you accumulate XP through doing something, uh, and then you spend XP to do something else. Mm-hmm. And that something else just makes you better. And I think... I think uh, development systems that really just make you better are occasionally pretty boring because it makes either either the early part of the game has to be that you're so underpowered that you can't do very much, or the late end of the game is you're so overpowered that it doesn't really matter what you do. And I think that systems that don't just make you better with advancement, uh, fate system where you have to trade skills up and down your tree, or uh, there's a couple of other systems that are kind of like that, Systems that are more about how your character is changing what they can do and not making what they can do way more powerful. I think that the the change is much more important, which is why something like experience boxes where you are, you know, in freebooting, it's not technically part of the development system because there's also a development system. Uh, you are seeing your character grow and change and do new things and have interesting stuff going on. Um, and that's part of your character sheet and part of the mechani- mechanical details, uh, even if it's not technically part of the advancement system. Yeah, the topic of actually what advancement means and those kind of uh, increasing numbers is something that I'm, I'm definitely going to wrap back around to, uh, because I think that's, that's the core issue here. Um, there's a lot of historical context to the idea of long-term character improvement uh, being one of these elements that came together to make D&D so revolutionary for the time. Um, and I think it's, it's become so much of a, a constant. Like, we, we expect games to have kind of an advancement mechanism. Like, that's, that's part of what 
um, it, for many people makes an RPG an RPG, but it it doesn't have to be that elemental. I think um, right. Though my first point is totally a more direct advancement mechanism, which is um, games that have you improve at what you do. Uh, so this is uh, the the. Most canonical examples, I think, are Burning Wheel, Torchbearer, and Mouse Guard, all of which um, are related to each other and do it slightly differently. But the the basic idea being that uh, whenever you roll one of your skills, you are working towards advancement on that particular skill, not not your general XP pool or something. You don't really have one of those. Love that mechanism. It is so great because it creates this kind of organic uh, character growth where the things that your character gets better at are the things that your character does, which uh, has a lot of similarities to real life. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that it's a simulation of real life exactly, but it makes a lot more sense than the, uh, I l- earned a whole bunch of XP by you know, killing monsters, and I use that to be better at cooking. Uh, th- there's a, a real cool tie, and the way that these games diverge is actually really interesting. So in Burning Wheel, uh, whenever you're making a roll, you look at the difficulty of the role compared to your skill and that tells you which kind of check you get and you need a certain depending on your current skill you need a certain number of different levels of checks so you may need a certain number of routine which is basically like your your under your skill you may uh i think it's challenging and um i forget the last category difficult, difficult. Uh, yeah um and so for some of these you actually may end up gaming the system to try to lower to take advantage of times when your skill will be lower so that you can make find ways to uh, push yourself, basically. Right. Um, which is interesting because it creates an incentive to, to seek out tough situations. Um, and then it doesn't actually matter how your role turns out. You can fail every single one of those, and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. I, I really pushed myself, and uh, luckily I'm still alive because now I can improve this skill. Um, on the other hand, uh, Torchbearer and Mouse Guard uh, keep track of success and failure. Which I... Th- it, it has a very different effect on play. It has a very different effect on play. It's a nice streamlining because you don't have to like consult this chart of, uh, you know, this is the thing that I'm rolling and this is my ob, uh, obstacle. This is what kind of check it is. Instead, you just roll the dice and based on how it actually comes out, you mark one of the boxes and then you look at your current skill and you need a certain number. Um, which is, is nice and simple, and it fits with Torchbearer and Mouse Guard being a little more streamlined. But you're right, it creates very different incentives, because now, uh, instead of looking for challenges, per se, you can just have a bad roll and get that failure on something that should have been totally routine. Right. Um, you're, but you are still looking for things that are hard enough that you should fail them. Yeah. But you're also looking for things that are so easy you will definitely succeed, as opposed to Burning Wheel, where... Uh, as long as it's just a little bit under your skill, it counts for routine. Yeah. But as soon as you get higher and higher in, in burning wheel stats, routines don't matter anymore, and you have to get the hard stuff. At which point, you know, it's, well, how hard do I need this one to be to make this thing match up? Whereas in Mouse Guard, it's like, uh, I just need one more failure, so I'm going to do something just super hard so I will certainly fail. No, I can't help. Don't don't want any help. No, yeah. thank you. The, the helping thing is really interesting because that's something that comes up a lot, uh, especially with Torchbearer players, where uh, the rules for helping are, are very beneficial in Torchbearer uh, because they're supposed to be. Like, the only way that you really survive is by everybody helping. And a lot of first-time Torchbearer players I've played with uh, look at that and are like, well, why don't, why don't we help all the time? And the answer is, yes, you pretty much do help all the time unless there's a really? situation where you're, you're angling for that role that... 
you'll maybe fail, uh, and everybody agrees. Well, yeah, we can we can kind of take the consequences on this one. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting effects on play by that that small change uh, in exactly how you earn those checks. Um, but I really like it because it, it's organic. It's a system that grows out of play. Um, these games also have some element of uh, a, like a training rule for the most part. Um, where for the things that, if you need to develop something that you haven't used in play because you want to, there are rules for, okay, you find somebody to teach you, and you know the, you, spend the, you spend some kind of resource time, basically, uh, and you get a starting value in that skill. Um, mm-hmm. so there, it's not entirely the like, oh, well, I can't find a reason to cook. I'm never going to be a cook kind of thing. Um, oh, but I mean... The beginner's luck rules and and opening a new skill. Those, those I was hoping that you were going to talk about those advancement oh, rules too. Yeah, I, I guess I should mention those as well. So uh, the the rules for beginner's luck basically allow you to roll uh, pretty much anything and just be a beginner at it. You you actually are slightly advantaged compared to where that step will start once you unlock it. No, 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 because you're double up. Oh, the you're double, double up kills Sorry, you. Your 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 dice are slightly advantaged. Um, so your your double ob you're unlikely to do too well, but these are games with like open ended exploding dice in some situations. So there, there's there's always not a for chance. cooking, not for cooking. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, n- never tell me the odds when it comes to cooking. Uh, but anyway, like the you have these opportunities to develop new skills through play, um, despite having no prior experience in them. It's just a very risky option, um, and it's generally a way to kind of get. Failures for the most part. Be- well, beginner's luck is one of my favorite things for new players because yeah. new players will go through, build a couple of characters with those life paths, and then something will happen in play and they'll be like, oh, well, I need to do this. And I'm like, well, you're going to need to roll this skill then to do that. Well, I don't have a skill. Well, you can still roll that skill. Guess mm-hmm. what? Uh, and it's wonderful. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a way to kind of guard, um, as we were talking about last time, the, the character creation rules there being rather complex and you kind of have to have an idea of where you're going in most of these games uh, these particular games there are other games that do this kind of advancement um, but you know you, you could easily end up in a situation where you don't have a skill that it turns out you you later wanted uh, and having that way to kind of come back to that is is really important um, well, yeah I, I love this advancement it, it feels I'm just gonna you you don't like the uh, otherworldly music from, no, from the like parking garage? No, it's especially bad this time. Uh, so I'll, <laughs> sorry, I'll try and create a good cut uh, start somewhere so you can cut me up the last You'll time. You'll be like. fine. Yeah. So yeah, th- this becomes a really great form of advancement for me. I like that uh, it just kind of happens organically in play. I don't have to to think about it a whole lot. Um, it's to borrow a, a term that Vincent uses in Apocalypse World a lot. It's to some degree both prescriptive and descriptive in that there are, uh, you can as a player angle for getting a certain skill up and really looking for these checks uh, and and basically say, I want to level up this skill, I'm going to find ways to do it. But it's also descriptive in that the things you do, you will end up increasing. Um, it's not quite pre- prescriptive in the way that you can just be like, I'm going to spend some points to get this up. Uh, but with... The Artha and stuff that you have in the the Burning Wheel games, you can oh, yeah. you can angle pretty hard for that. You can't quite just buy it, but you can set yourself up. The um, big complicated clockwork masterpiece of Burning Wheel, like your Artha doesn't count against the difficulty of the check. Yes. So you know everything just wraps in and affects everything else. So you play your beliefs up, you play your instincts and traits up, 
and that gives you a whole bunch of these points that you can use to give you bonuses on these rolls that really you should be failing because it's a horribly difficult check, but you could still potentially succeed at it and still get the check for it, which is why I say it has such different effects from like Mouse Guard. Yeah. Because in Mouse Guard, you don't get any of that, oh, well, you know, I want to succeed, but I also want to check towards advancement on this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, no. You, if you're going to have to fail if you want to do that thing. Yep. But I, so, Artha being the, those points that you can spend play into this so beautifully because Artha is generated by a lot of other things in the system. So, you create these big loops where, you know, I want to make a, a really difficult check. So, I know that I need some Artha so that I can add dice and open end sixes and stuff. Uh, but to get those, I need to be playing to my beliefs, instincts, and traits. Uh, it, it's. Circles within circles. It, it's burning wheel to the extreme, uh, which is wonderful. But the interesting thing about failures, I also like that as a kind of like a lesson on life. Uh, totally. The the burning wheel system is you have to have tried tough things, and if you succeed at them, great, and if you fail at them, whatever. Uh, whereas Mouse Guard and Torchbearer are, you have to have... You're not going to learn anything, yeah. Yeah, you, you have to screw up, which is, uh, I think, not an easy lesson for, for at least me to learn. Um, a lot of people look at success as the mark of advancement uh, in a real-world sense. And I, I like games that tell you, no, part of advancement is, is screwing up. Yeah, totally. No, no, no. I, I, I like both systems. I particularly like the Mouse Guard Torchbearer deal because it's just so much easier in play to manage, yes. Um, unless you are super used to that chart, you're you're gonna have to keep it open. Yeah. Um, and that's that's not so much fun. But uh, what's, what was the other thing? The the other great thing about burning wheel advancement for skills is that it counts even for things like resources and circles. Yes. Which is just so amazing. So resources is the abstraction of cash in burning wheel. Although there are cash dice, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so instead of keeping track of I have 530 gold pieces and two silver pieces, you just say I've got resources four, I've got resources three. And it's just another skill that you roll. So you want to buy something? Cool. Roll resources, ob two, ob three, whatever. You want to buy a ship? Ob six, ob seven. Want to buy a country? Well, let's figure that out. About, uh, and, and you can make those rolls. And if you fail that roll, you might still get the thing and then have a horrible time. Uh, and your resources can get taxed, just like a lot of your other stuff. And you can improve your resources by making so many challenging rolls and so many difficult rolls. It's just such an amazing way to make the system work for what's really a straightforward abstraction. And now it's got all of these interesting fictional elements to it, too, right? Yeah, I love the, the abstractions of money for, for most games, really. Like uh, Especially when I see a, a pseudo-modern game, like anything in the past... 100 plus set anytime in the, the past 100 plus years yeah uh that has you tracking amounts of money i just I, it's, it's the worst it blows my mind uh because I, I think the thing that resources enables is um by abstracting you get more of a uh economy that the players can see uh yeah. you know if when you are spending your money uh in say basic D&D, um, there's a lot of knowledge needed from the players and the GM to make that really a, a full-on working economy. The, the game provides a lot of things there that, that set that up with prices that are listed and uh, with some of the adventures where you can buy things and what's there and everything. Those all kind of imply economy. Um, but without this kind of layer of abstraction, it's really hard for the players to do, to do things like, well, I'm... Uh, 
spending money to make money kind of like I'm, I'm investing or something like that. Whereas in Burning Wheel, that becomes really pretty baked into this abstraction. Like you, you use your resources to uh, pay to send adventurers out or whatever. And uh, as that helps you advance your resources, it's because that kind of real world flow of, you know, now you're, you're bought into the economy and everything. Um, as someone who just recently sold a house and bought a house, like the the way that these things work in the real world kind of blows my mind. You know, I I spent this huge amount of money, but I actually ended up increasing my overall financial kind of net <laughs> worth, for lack of a better word. Um, and resources provide that kind of abstraction in a way that uh, I, as a GM, do not want to have to bring that to a game that's having my players count their their pennies basically okay so here's a bit of a tangent but i think it's an important tangent i think one of the best things about the resources idea is uh two parts uh part number one granularity Mm -hmm. so the the problem with like DD money is that you're dealing in thousands of gold pieces or you know i've got 200 platinum pieces or whatever and at the point where you have so many small grand, like how much do I care that you bought a two copper torch or something if you have thousands of gold pieces? Mm-hmm. Like, are you really tracking those things? So this is the same kind of thing with like ammunition in games that are tracking them for large amounts of arrows, right? Yep. It's just not interesting to keep track of that kind of stuff. And so if you have a granularity like resources where really your number is two, three, four, one, zero, mm-hmm. uh, then there's a lot of difference between two and three and a huge amount of difference between zero and one. And that's just, it's just a big deal uh, to, to kind of reduce the granularity to the point where every single point is a serious, serious matter. And then the other really big thing is that because of that granularity is reduced and because Burning Wheels makes each roll so big, you can do really important things with one resources roll. Yeah. Like in, in, in Dungeon World, you have, you know, I've got this big shopping list and I've got our amount of coin and I'm going to match up the coin with the shopping list and maybe we'll make a, 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 a haggle or barter or whatever it is roll uh, to kind of collect this stuff and see what interesting stuff can come out of that, but you're still you still have to track coin even though it's still got the granularity that's that's kind of nice. But for resources, it's like <clears throat> I don't even care if you're buying little stuff, uh, although you know because I'm not going to just give you a whole bunch of trivial rolls. But if you're buying something that I care about or a whole bunch of little stuff at once, let's make an interesting resources roll that then it's going to be. Uh, now you're horribly poor because you made the wrong deal with somebody at the spice market, uh, and now you're stuck with this this terrible thing going on. Yeah. Um, oh, it's just you, it's you just... bought into spice futures, um, <laughs> and, and everybody knows it has to flow. Exactly. So. Yeah. It's just... Just, yeah. There's an interesting point there because you mentioned ammunition, which um, actually brought to mind two things. First of all, Burning Empires, which is the the Burning Wheel related game that that most people in space forget about. Um, so the interesting thing there, it does have ammunition and it does work kind of as you were describing. Instead of, you know, tracking off your individual bullets, uh, you make, oh man, it's been so long since I played, but I believe it's per uh, basically engagement. You make kind of ammo check rolls and certain things within an engagement, I believe, can have you make those more often. And so you're basically checking, am I out of ammo? And it's kind of like resources that, you know, you, you know how many dice of ammo you have and that result could modify the amount that you have going forward. Um, which, which creates that really nice uh, flow. And, of course, there are some checks on that so you don't have the, like, 
I rolled really lucky. I have infinite ammo. Like there, there are some bounds on how far I can go, but it works a lot better than tracking off individual arrows. On the other hand, uh, Luke and the Burning Wheel crew, um, I, I've heard stories of this game, I've never been part of it, had a um, very D&D style Burning Wheel game uh, where apparently they, they played for a long time, they became these incredibly powerful um, characters uh, in Burning Wheel that's tracked in part by your shade. Your, your oh stats, yeah, totally. Uh, can be black, gray, or white, which indicate basically um, kind of tiers of power. Um, and they, they actually, what they mean is when you roll dice with that stat, what number you're looking for. So the uh, the higher the shade, all the way up to white, the more numbers on a dice count as a success. Yeah, on white, anything that's not a one is a success, which is completely insane. Yeah, so you know, you're rolling six dice, and you can easily get six successes out of that. But um, you shade shift only one thing at a time. So you could shade shift your resources to white, and you just have godlike finances. Yep. Uh, the interesting thing there, apparently, at least the summaries of this game that I've heard, I, I think secondhand, I don't even sh- know that I've heard these from Luke, um, they were really high level and still had uh, trouble like getting arrows and stuff. They, because of the way advancement works, really awesome like elven archers who could you know shoot smog's <laughs> belly from a thousand yards or whatever uh but they would still after combat go and pick up all their arrows because they they didn't have the finances to just be like we we buy a mountain of arrows uh, plus how you carry it but uh, <laughs> it's really interesting to see how these systems come out and play and, and the um things that they drive uh and i'm gonna go ahead and jump into my second point because do it. We talked about tiers with Burning Wheel Shades, which uh, I think scale is a major element of advancement. And you actually mentioned this early on. You, I believe, have spoiled all my points, but I'm going to hit it anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so scale the the idea of advancement as that feeling of kind of growing into um, zero to hero kind of things uh, is is really powerful, especially that kind of first bump of it. Um, so a, a great example here of that, that first bump is Dungeon Crawl Classics, DCC, where you start out as a zero-level character and you start out as several zero-level characters because <laughs> a lot of them are going to die. The ones who qualify for first level, it's this huge bump of going from basically a peasant to like a, a real adventure. You have a class now. You have a class. Uh, you get cool abilities. Uh, and, and at first level, pretty much all the classes have a significant ability, even... If you're the, the fighter types, you have a significant ability, not just I'm slightly better at hitting stuff. Um, and and so that sense of scale, that, that bump up there, feels really cool. Um, fourth edition D&D kind of did this with tiers, uh, though they didn't really work out that way. They weren't as clearly defined. Um, and when they're not as clearly defined, you get that just kind of increasing numbers scaling, mm-hmm. uh, which still feels... Kind of, it, it feeds into that feeling of advancement, um, but when it's an unbounded scale, it really kind of falls apart eventually. Uh, level level one and level two are much more different than level ninety nine and level one hundred. Exactly, and, and once you start to, when your numbers can scale upwards infinitely, um, there's always this urge to define what more skill needs. Um, mm-hmm. So, so third edition had the epic level handbook, which is. Uh, kind of wonderful for the the sheer madness of it. Um, so it basically says, uh, 3rd edition D&D was, was capped at 20th level to begin with, and it says, okay, here's how to continue advancing past that. Um, and so, for example, it includes uh, skill 
difficulty classes, you know, what number you have to roll against to do bizarre things. So, like, the uh, luckily all of this is now available through an SRD online, so I can look it up because I don't have my copy anymore. Um, the, the DC to balance on a cloud is 120, uh, which is amazing both because it's a huge number and because this is a system where you roll a d20 and add a stat. So even if you roll a natural 20, your skill has to be 100, at which point, just kind of the mathematics of this, your, your skill is the dominating factor in every single roll. Like yep. your, the roll of dice can only be influencing that by like 20%. A fifth, yeah. Yeah, a fifth of your, your, your total skill. Um, the DC to turn a hostile creature into a fanatic through a performance is 150. So you, you know, if you somehow buff up your uh, perform skill to 149, because ones are always failures, so who cares about that? Uh, 148, I guess, because you don't need to worry about the 149 case. So if you have 148 in perform, you can just show up to any fight, and assuming you don't roll a one, you have turned everybody, a person into a fanatic for you, not just a friendly, a fanatic. Uh, the DC to detect somebody's surface thoughts... 100. You, you just look at them so hard, you can tell what they're thinking, which I kind of love, actually. Like, that is that is really great. Um, and when you have numbers like this, all this scaling becomes really weird because you can... The third edition was kind of notorious for um, finding mathematical glitches, basically, because it's a very kind of orderly, straightforward system where, where things convert into other things, and there's clear kind of mathematical progressions to everything, which means that when you can find ways to mess around with it, uh, especially when there's DCCs, DCs like this defined, yep. you can do crazy stuff. If you can figure out a way to get, you know, uh, a one-time not plus 90 bonus through uh, something that magnifies your existing skill and a spell that boosts things and divine guidance and whatever, all of a sudden you can, on this one roll balance on a cloud or whatever. Like it, I love these numbers because they're so absurd that then uh, somebody will work out the math to break them that much earlier. It rolls back in on itself and becomes just like, what, what game are we even playing at yeah. this point? Yeah, and I, I love it. That, like there, there are all these DCs for, for things that uh, kind of just shouldn't happen, you know. Um, and, and compare this to uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition, which is a percentile system. So things cap out at 100. Um, and that has actually a really nice combination of kind of the DCC zero level thing where you start out as like a rat catcher or whatever. Um, for the most part, you, you might get lucky and be something a little better than that. Uh, and you have skills that are like tens and twenties and stuff and you're, you're rolling a hundred sided dice basically, uh, and checking if you get beneath your skill. Um, so there it has both this like zero to hero kind of thing where you start out being so awful and then, uh, the steps up over that are so clear and so obvious, and there's also an upper bound on them. There, there's actually a really nice feeling there when you're playing. Uh, we, we played a, a very long Warhammer 2nd Edition game um, of going from, you know, you create your character and you're looking at like, I have a 10% chance of succeeding at something that is relatively important to me. Like, uh, And then a few dozen sessions later. I mean, advancement <laughs> is, is a little slow. But you, you get to that point where you're like, I have a one in three chance that this works out for me. And it just feels so great. Um, and it also helps that you can see these steps really clearly. Um, yeah, it, it is a really great 
way of uh, merging those two ideas together. And part of it is because there is an upper bound on it. Um, when, when everything is unbounded, it gets a really weird, complex, yeah. Well, if you're going to go full numeric, I'm going to go full fiction and talk about compendium classes, which are one of my favorite advancement things. This is this is fiction-driven, uh, you know, extra, what are they, basically prestige class type things mm -hmm. for Dungeon World. And so... Normal D&D style pre prestige classes are get to level five and have this skill and have this feat and have this other thing. And if all of that stuff is written on your character sheet, congratulations, you are allowed to take the arcane archer or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, which, which is cool to make for the character creation puzzle. You know, uh, it's a fun little mini game that you can play. Uh, but it didn't, you know, how did you become the arcane archer? You just got better and better at archery and now you're an arcane archer? That It's weird. But the compendium classes are, hey, uh, did you almost die underground? Then take this totally awesome class with totally awesome moves, and you have all these new things now. Uh, did you uh, did you find a dragon tooth? Well, you can wield it like a dagger, and here's some special moves in a special class where people will recognize your cultist status or whatever. And it's just completely fiction-driven to the point where I really want to build a hack of like D&D where all of the feats, instead of being something you take on level up, are, if you did this, you have this feat now. Mm -hmm. Like, if you can prove that this can happen, make, make it happen, just straight up, so, in the fiction. Yeah, that was something that I was, uh, when you were talking about Freebooting Venus, I've messed with advancement ideas that are more like that, where, uh, you know, specific abilities are locked between behind specific things you do, or some combination of, you know, you get X points for doing those specific things. Um, and I like that you're citing that, because I... I do like that solution, obviously. Like I, I designed it, but I don't love it actually. Um, it's so. It's the problem with it for me. Yeah. Maybe this is a different one than for you, but the problem with it for me is that it's such a big change, and you want advancement to feel big enough that it's going to be important, but small enough that it's not a pain to do. Mm -hmm. And when you're adding new moves to your sheet, that's a little bit of a pain to do. Um, go ahead. Yeah. No. Uh, my complaint is along the same lines. It's a, a tough thing to manage just um, kind of logistically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you the, the way that most of these things are presented is they're designed to be printed on about a half sheet, but um, some of them aren't available in a great-to-print format. So, you know, when you, you have these things, presenting them to people in a way that is digestible and that they can easily reference at the table, which right. is kind of a big thing in Dungeon World, is... Um, Difficult. And uh, for advancement to work, you have to know what you are advancing to. I actually disagree. I don't think you have to know what you're advancing to. Well, so so think about think about all the examples that we've talked about so far. Uh, if you're not going to advance a skill to 150 in D&D unless you found that check and are like, I'm just going to make that happen. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to be advancing you know, your resources and stuff. You have to make difficult checks. You're, you have you know where that's going, right? In in Dungeon World compendium classes, if you don't know that there's a compendium class that is, uh, you know, I've been on a boat for three weeks without food or water or whatever, then you're never going to have that compendium class because you have to trigger it, right? Sure, but I think that there's there's room there for compendium classes that are are triggered. Um after an event that seems like it has modified the character. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you, um, we've had uh, characters 
I think we actually published this as a community class, but who have, you know, come back from the other side of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once that happened in a game, and if the player is like, oh, yeah, I think that really, like, changed me, like, maybe I get some special abilities from that, that's a great time to say, like, okay, let's make a compendium class. Sure, you build one on the fly, it. yeah. Yeah, um, so, like, I don't think that it's necessary. It, it's awesome to provide those things, uh, and I think there's there's probably a, a more focused game than Dungeon World that would actually benefit from laying out a set of compendium classes like at the beginning of play or something and being like, these are all things that people can angle for. The first one who gets it, you're, you get that. Um, which might actually be an interesting way to bridge uh, Apocalypse World, prevent, presents all its playbooks as like the whatever. You, know, mm-hmm. you, you are that one thing. Um, and Dungeon World is in the same vein, but mostly because bonds. Like Because having a whole bunch of fighters who all have the exact same bonds is, is a little weird. Um, but it would be interesting to have Dungeon World where you could have a whole bunch of fighters, but then have like the... Uh, the what's a good fighter one? Um, I want to say paladin, but that's another class. Uh, so let's say you can have a whole bunch of paladins and have like the Templar be the one sheet that's out there, and the multiple paladins in the group are like, oh, I, I think I'm gonna angle for that. Like that would be pretty cool. Well, so what this is, in in my opinion, is it's basically life paths pushed to character advancement. Sure. So life paths. You're picking life paths. If you push them into character advancement, you'd have to pick them through fictional choices made by your character, right? Mm -hmm. Like, here's the life path that is, uh, I am a slave now. And, well, if your character becomes a slave in the game, bam, you grab that that life path compendium-y sheet and add all of its stuff to your stuff and add, like, six years to the character time Mm -hmm. and zoom in later. And I I guess the, the problem that I have with... Uh, noticing the fiction and then writing some new stuff for that moment is that that is a lot of weight on a GM to do game design. Yes. And we GMs are already doing a ton of game design. Yep. And so it's a little more scary than I would otherwise like. Yep. And there's a lot of advancement stuff that is that fits within the rules. Like if my wizard finds a new spell and I copy it into my spellbook, cool, I have it. I don't need to wait till I level up to write it in my spellbook. Mm-hmm. And that's that's well within the rights of all the people at the table to make happen. But coming back from death and let's write you a whole new, you know, one or two moves and some descriptive stuff and maybe do some screwy stat things, that's a lot more weight on your shoulders to make sure that you don't write something that's boring or give some options that aren't very interesting and won't show up or... Mm -hmm. Which is... Makes me hesitate to do it, I guess. Yeah, so uh, a middle ground on this that I've played around with um, in A Storm Eternal, which is like a, a partially finished design that, oh, who knows when we'll get back to, um, with, with John Harper and uh, the Riddles, Paul and Shannon, um, based off of uh, Vincent's um, Apocalypse World Dark Ages, uh, but taking it a little more like Game of Thrones and Dooney. Um, the, there was a thing there that we wanted to um, add... Uh, basically titles like you, you you want to be able to play characters who are who are Daenerys Stormborn the Unburned Breaker of Chains Mother of Dragons etc so like you, you want to be able to write those things and one idea that I had had floating around for that was to then have um, like some options for advancement for a few of those and how ha- and this is still in more of the like you get the title now and then you can take the advancement later kind of thing sure um, but I think that there's an opportunity there for the GM to like Hit the immediate like yeah you you this happened now 
add your your epitaph, your your title, whatever, um, and, and then we'll figure out what you get. And later. then later on, you have these new options because most of the time, like the the stuff that needs to happen really immediately in the fiction should always be reflected in the fiction. Like mm-hmm. if you come back from the dead and now your your skin is this ashen white, like that that shouldn't be a move that you have to wait to level up. That that's a thing that happened in the fiction. And if that means that now. Uh, you're immune to fire or whatever, like that. That is just a thing that is true in the fiction. That shouldn't be a level up move. And especially for a fantasy, like you know, a pulp fantasy game, you yeah. you want you come back from the dead and then you discover all these new powers that you have because you came back from the dead. So it, it yeah. works out. Yeah, and discovering new powers actually leads into my third point. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in there. Um, I think this is something that you uh, hit on earlier. The most interesting thing for me is change, not advancement. Um, we, we, like I said earlier, come from a, a background of D&D patching together all of these ideas that, that created this amazing uh, mixture that just clicked for people. And one of those is the idea of long-term character advancement. And so that's become kind of a de facto standard. Um, but it doesn't really have to be. Like, character change is, uh, for many types of games, maybe more true to the the source material than um, character advancement. I mean, even for for games that are uh, more of a, a simulation kind of thing that are that are trying to model, uh, say, World War II soldiers or something. Not not stories about them, but like not fiction about them, but try to you know real tales of World War II kind of uh, RPG. I still think that change is probably more of a thing than advancement. Like most people don't in their lives advance in the same way that we see characters do on this kind of monotonically increasing scale. Yeah, um, one of the things I'm working on on the side is a Napoleon game. Yeah. And you think, uh, from a wargaming perspective, you think of Napoleon as already being the best at everything as far as war is concerned during the period that he was winning all of that stuff up until Waterloo. Uh, and... So where do you even look at advancement? And it's like, well, all of the really interesting advancement for Napoleon happened in like the first three or four years that he was fighting, mm-hmm. going from artillery to lead. And then once you hit that point, most of the rest of it is pretty static. It's just all change in, oh, yeah, now he's the emperor. Now he's in exile. Now he's returned and is raising an army of a million people. Like, yeah. it's he is not significantly stronger than he was previously. It's just... Here's the change in situation and the change in, in all of this myth around him. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, especially for, for pulp uh, fantasy, kind of, there's um, lots of opportunities for a character to kind of discover a new ability, um, but they're not necessarily always in kind of the, the new power way that uh, a lot of games do it. And so I think a lot of games actually end up in, um, they have advancement in the D&D mold, but more as a stand-in for the genre's assumptions of, of change. Like I think Monster mm-hmm. Hearts is a really great example of this because you do need that kind of you know the uh, the catharsis demon, realization. Yeah, the realization like the the ghost uh, realizes that they can actually possess people or whatever. I, I don't think that's actually a, a ghost move in Monster Hearts. I don't have a, a playbook handy, but that kind of discovering of new things is important, but the um, idea of that as kind of a, a gain of power, like, you know, a lot of, uh, I think, supernatural fantasy, uh, supernatural romance fantasy, in the case of Monster Hearts, those abilities are more of a, um, they're discovered and they're important for a time, 
but it's less common for it to be like a major advancement that then the character goes on from then on with like their new ability and uh, like superhero comics, like occasionally characters get kind of new canonical powers, but most of the time when somebody comes up with some new use of a power, it kind of gets written back out almost immediately, um, right. which lots of superhero games handle very well. Uh, but that that kind of character change as opposed to, to straight up advancement is... I think really important to games, and some games do this really well. Like you mentioned, Fate before, um, <laughs> Quantum Adventures to a degree, it, yeah. it, because it, it is emulating TV, where it's less that a character uh, becomes more powerful strictly. Their, their situation may certainly change, uh, but like Walter White doesn't really develop super significant new skills. He doesn't become like a, a dramatically better chemist or something. Right. Uh, but his relationships with people and the investment uh, in various ongoing things and his current resources and stuff, those all shift like crazy. Right. Um, and there's also games like Fiasco where the characters don't change in on the sheet, but they are changing as the players' understandings of them change. Mm-hmm. And then the situation changes drastically in the middle and then everybody's all all screwed. Um, yeah, there's lots of games that I looked at for, for this list that were... There is no character advancement. Yeah. Like, you, here you've written down your character, your character is this thing... And the only thing that's really changing about them is their situation and your understanding of who they are and what they can do and that kind of thing, um, which is a really cool situation. It's a really cool situation, but in a lot of cases, it doesn't feel satisfying for me to do that for too long. I mean, right. Fiesca works great because it, it is one session. Uh, like, it, it doesn't matter that I didn't get to add a new thing because, like, we kind of told the story and it's done. Yeah, you um, feel like you've exhausted, potentially, yeah. the the ideas here. Whereas the thing with with Monster Hearts, like, uh, getting to pick up a new thing that all of a sudden, uh, part of it is that those always shift the situation. Like, you, mm-hmm. you now have an ability that, that changes the world around you, which helps keep things dynamic. Um, but I almost wonder how Monster Hearts would work if pretty much all of your advancements were, were temporary. Like, you... Sure. you you earned the, the chance to take an advancement, and you got that, but with some kind of timer, um, like, I actually still haven't read Monster Hearts 2. I, I really need to. I'm assuming that this still applies, but they had this idea, Monster Hearts originally had this idea of seasons, where uh, once somebody has done a certain number of advancements, you kind of wrap up a season and start the next one if you want to. Um, and it'd be interesting if a lot of your advancements were just till end of season. Like, sure. you know, you pick up your new crazy supernatural ability, until the end of the season, and then you revert back to not having it. And you could buy it again next season if you want, but um, that could actually create an interesting dynamic that's maybe more related to the source material. Um, So let's talk about my number one, uh, which is Tenra's attachment cycle. Oh, you mentioned you were going to go to Tenra again. (laughs) I love Tenra so much. Uh, And and I'm I'm playing a lot more of it, so I get to appreciate a lot more of it. So Tenra Tenra has this cycle of three things... Uh, and in Andy's uh, Andy Katowski's translation, he uses uh, ki, iki, and karma, uh, which are horrible words for a U.S. audience because you have to explain them all every single time. Mm-hmm. So, iki are kind of like uh, uh, currency that you acquire in play for playing out your beliefs, your fates. So you've got a fate that is, oh man, I hate that prince, and so whenever that comes up in play, you'll get a couple of points, you'll get a couple of chits thrown your way. Uh, and these are great. You know, these are these are super important. You can spend them to do some cool things, uh, but you probably want to hold on to them because at the end of the act, Tenra is a one-shot game always. So at the end of the act, because you play four or five acts, you turn all of your IKEA chits 
into Kiai, which are kind of like XP points that you hold on to. And you'll end up, uh, I think, what was the last one? I've got a really crazy, um, what is it? He had 11 Aikichits and an emotion, uh, uh, a stat of, of six, which means he rolled 66 dice to, uh, to figure out how many Kiai points he had for the next act. And he had something like 30. So you have a ton of these, right? Yeah. Just an enormous amount of them. Uh, and then you go into the next one, and you can spend ki at any point. Spend XP in the middle of the session. You can spend XP just before a roll. You can spend XP in the middle of a fight. Whenever you want. But whenever you spend this stuff, it turns into karma, which is attachment. How much are you attached to this world? Well, uh, I spent like 30 ki to make that to get because each additional ki you spend gives you an extra die because mm-hmm. it's a dice pool game. So I've seen people roll 30 dice for an attack, which is the best thing ever. Yep. Um, so every additional one that you spend says, I really care about the situation, and it's just added to your karma. Uh, well, the problem is, if your character has more than 108 attachment to the world, uh, you are pulled out and deprotagonized, uh-huh. and uh, and things, things are pretty bad. You become an Asura, which is kind of like Dark Jedi type thing. Um, and so, well, how do you get rid of karma if you're actually... Because you, you also spend ki to improve your attributes. You spend ki to improve your skills. You p- spend it to do any character advancement. And you only have 108. And even at character creation, you have like 60 to 80 because all your character creation also counts this XP. Well, your fates, your beliefs, during the intermission, just before you roll to get all this new ki, you can get rid of a fate and that gets rid of a whole bunch of karma. Uh, so like you have this fate, I just hate the prince with all my heart. And then you hit the, the intermission and you're like, you know, I'll just deal with it. You know, that's, yeah. that's fine. It's played out. It's cool. Everything's going to be okay. And you get rid of it and your karma drops by 40 points. Not about the karma police coming for you anymore. And... <laughs> you're the worst. Uh, and, and now you have all this extra room for more advancement. So that also means that during play, you can spend a whole bunch of ki and take yourself way over 108 mm-hmm. and then drop a couple of fates and now you're back under and everything is safe and, and good and cool and stuff. Oh, nice. It is, it's just everything ends up everything ends up cycling back in, just like the burning wheel clockwork that we're talking about, where mm-hmm. you have to care about all of these pieces to understand how your character works. And it gets the amber thing of, don't you just want to spend a point or two more? Yeah. Because in the middle of a fight, you're like, well, after I roll even, you can spend three ki to just get a bonus. Yeah. You can spend a couple ki to act before somebody. You can spend more ki to get additional actions in a single round of combat. And so the, what was it, last session I had, somebody summoned something and then spent like 10 ki to have it shoot lasers 20 times or whatever <laughs> and just kill everything on the table. Uh-huh. But now his karma's, you know, way up. Way up. So... Game designer question. Why yeah. 108? 108 is because it's not a game design question. It's a uh, Buddhist uh, uh, religion question. Okay. Uh, and you'd have to talk to to Andy, who knows way more about this stuff than I do. But okay. uh, there's there's a there's an uh, 108 has significance. Okay. Uh, to Buddhism. So yeah, I, I I was wrapping around the the game wonky uh, kind of discussion <laughs> of like the, you you try to choose numbers that people can remember, and so like. One and two and three and ten, five. Like those are all like in things this, that people in this yeah. culture, 
in the in this culture, 108 is not a difficult number to remember. Okay. And when you're playing and you've got your character at like 97 and you have 50 karma, uh, 50 ki that you're just ra- waiting to spend, you have 108 in your head quite a lot. So yep. it becomes a very easy number to remember. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not doubting it. I was just curious <laughs> why 108. That's uh, why 108. Okay. It's very weird. And it doesn't, like, it doesn't really make sense for how it's used. Mm-hmm. It's just a big number that yeah, happens to be very common. Yeah. Sure. So, so yeah, so you, you run through this stuff, all of these numbers cycle around and add to your character, which ends up being that your character is getting better over the course of this four-act one-shot. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, you're like, we know this is the final act. This is the one-shot. I'm never maybe going to see this character again. Uh, there's a thing in combat where you, if you don't check a particular wound box, you can't die. You can only get knocked unconscious. So, But if you check that box, you're not dead yet, but you get plus three dice to everything. <laughs> so you end up in the situation where, okay, we're in the fourth act, and everything is all cool, and we know the game is going to end, and I'm at 90, 20, you know, 98 karma, 99 karma, and I have just a million ki because I haven't been spending it. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is the final boss battle. Well, what do we do? And you end up with a situation where in the final combat, everybody's rolling tons of dice, and they're all going way over their limits, and nice. everybody's checking their dead boxes so they can roll extra dice. And you might end up with this situation where there's one surviving character, but he turns Dark Jedi, and everybody nice. else is dead on the floor, and then the game ends. Awesome. Yeah, and there's that brinksmanship to checking the, the you-can-die box. Yep. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. <coughs> but yeah, the, I think the reason that it works so well for me uh, is not just because you know you've got this really cool little cycle between all these me- mechanisms, but also because it is a one shot, and so you're managing these things and you're dealing with this limit and these constraints only to a point, and then at that final point, basically you are given free reign to say, screw those limits, you know, all those things that you were worried about the entire game, you don't have to worry about them right now because it's not going to matter. Yep. And then now you have this big, huge release moment, and then the game ends. Nice. I, yeah, I like character change a lot. Character change is the best. So, go over the one, two, three. My, my one and two are totally cheats because they're almost the same, but <laughs> I, I, still, I still wanted to keep My them. one, two, three... Uh, my my top one, number one, improve at what you do. Uh, systems where the things that you do are the things that improve, and it just kind of all comes together organically. Uh, number two, scale. Uh, both kind of jumps in scale of zero to hero, uh, or that big zero to one or one to two kind of level shift, uh, as well as an idea of capping scale so you don't end up with the you know DC 150 uh, to turn something into a fanatic with the power <laughs> of music. Uh, and number three, uh, change, not advancement. Games that focus on um, ways that a character situation can change, not ways that they can uh, improve in an absolute sense. Yeah, my number one, uh, I really love little tiny artifacts of play that say, look at this cool thing that I did that one time, like in Freebooting Venus. Uh, Companion classes, fiction-driven advancement where you're advancing because of something that just happened to happen in play and not because I checked these 20 boxes. Uh, and then the amazing karma cycle in Tenra, uh, which oh, it, I just love it so much. 
Oh, great. I think that covers everything. Mm -hmm. That's it for our 25th question. What are the best ways to handle advancement? Another question is Adam Blinkensop and Sage Latora. You can find us on Twitter at AQ Podcast or by searching for another question on Google Plus or Facebook. Our website, anotherquestion.com, has all our old episodes plus links to all the games we mentioned in each episode and other bonus material. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a question, leave us a review on iTunes, or share this episode. Thank you.